Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Um, it's a privilege, again, to continue our conversation. It is now almost 11 o'clock, um, and, but the, Darren has given me uh, time to talk about uh, conflict in marriage, so that should only take about 10, 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, so uh, uh, I do want, though, to uh, celebrate uh, with, with, with uh, what, what God's doing. It's just so much fun to be part of this community and to uh, celebrate. I've been pastoring for 35 years, and I've never had as much fun in a, in a, in a role in a church than I have in this community, and it's just a blast to be here. Um, as, as witness our conversation over these last few weeks on, on what God has to say about sexuality and love. And uh, last time I was here, we talked about sexuality and singleness. I want to talk, uh, building off of uh, Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, uh, chapters 5 and 6, the conversation about uh, conflict in marriage, and particularly sexual conflict in marriage. Uh, this is going to, again, veer into uh, uh, kind of a, a R rating at times. So if that's going to be an issue for, for you or with the kids that you may have with, please, um, uh, uh, although candidly, probably kids probably are as well informed about uh, where we're at in this. I remember uh, sitting down with my youngest son uh, to have the talk. We'd had numerous conversations before, uh, but uh, I decided it was time to to really make sure that the, we were both on the same page and he had the information he needed and so on and so forth. So I said, uh, Peter, do you want to get together and we'll just talk a little bit about sexuality? And he said, sure, Dad, what do you want to know? <laughs> All right, so that's uh, kind of where we're at in, 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 in the culture. Um, so we're going to work out of uh, Song of Solomon chapters 5 and 6. This is a very, very difficult passage. It's one of those ones where you get the full power and beauty of the eroticism of the, of the love poem, but also the mystery of sexuality and love as depicted in that early culture. So if you've got Bibles, you can turn with me to chapter 5 and 6. I'm going to excerpt them um, uh, just for the, for the interest of focus on what I think he's saying. Uh, over the last uh, couple of chapters, you have seen their relationship. As Darren has mentioned, this is a, a, not a chronological development. It is a, a, a weaving in and out. It's a powerful, powerful, powerful poem that celebrates uh, the beauty of, of sexual love within the framework of covenant in marriage. So they have, they have gotten married. They have consummated their relationship. And so now we begin this uh, conversation in Song of Solomon chapter 5. We're going to kind of work through this a chunk at a time. So she says, I slept, but my heart was awake. So this is her um, framing and the, and the indicator that what's going to follow now moves in and out of remembering and imagining. Remembering and imagining. As she is trying, like we all do in dream, to try and put um, life back in place to try and that's often what our dreams do they 
they file our lives in ways that it can be remembered, which is why dreams are so powerful and so important. So here she is in this kind of, of dream state, if you will, trying to make sense of the adventure that she has now gotten herself into as a newly married woman uh, and having experienced for the first time in her uh, life a, a, a sexuality that gives um, place and vibrancy to that, having preserved her virginity to present to her husband. So this is the image that she gets. So I'm, uh, I slept, but my heart was awake. But then listen, my lover is knocking. So in the middle of this, whether it's imagined or real, she hears a knocking at the door, and not just a knocking at the door. Remember that in this culture, they slept in separate bedrooms. So having engaged in a sexual relationship um, in, in the early stage of their marriage, she has now gone back to his room. So this is her remembrance. Her lover is knocking. Her husband is knocking. And at the same time, he is calling out. So there, there is in this culture a sense of, of urgency, a sense of passion, a sense of desire. He says, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of night. So he is outside her bedchamber. He is knocking on the door. The Hebrew here is literally pounding on the door in, in the power of his passion. All right? So this is the imagery that, that, that he gives. And then here's her response. In Hebrew... It means I have a headache. Uh, I have, I, I have, not quite, but I just made that up. Uh, so, I've taken off my robe, must I put it on again? I have washed my feet, must I soil them again? And then the remembrance of their lovemaking. My lover thrust his hand through the opening and my heart began to pound for him. Literally, the word heart there is the Hebrew for womb. So, her sexual response to his uh, embrace of her at a physical level, is, is in, 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 this, in this longing, this desire, this equal passion meeting his passion. Are you with, right? With me? So that's the imagery. Now she goes on and says this. So I arose to open for my lover, but he had left. He was gone. So he's pounding at the door, urgent with passion. His, her response is not now. No. And his response is not to pound louder, not to yell louder, not to demand, but to let her be. He honors her no without recrimination. In the meanwhile, this is, remember, this dream state moving in and out. Her passion for him, her longing for him is stirred up. So she gets out of bed. She opens the door only to discover that he's left her at her word. No means no. Not pursue me harder. Not yes in disguise. Not a temptation. Not a teasing. He takes her at her word. And now my heart sank at his departure. I looked for him but did not find him. I called him but he did not answer. And then back in this dream state, she uses this imagery of the watchman found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my cloak, those watchmen of the walls. She's not talking about going out looking for her husband. She is using the imagery of the time to describe what it feels like to her to have lost her virginity to him. 
to have given to her, given to him rather, what was in that culture her most precious possession. And notice the language here. It's the language of vulnerability. It's the language of pain. It's the language of surrender. And she is, so, so in this dream state, this, this back and forth of the imagery, and it, so, so longing for him marked with anguish at the loss of what marked her for the early part of her life, not with regret, but the idea of vulnerability, the idea of openness, the idea of surrender. And she says, they left, they took away my cloak, those watchmen of the wall. She feels vulnerable and exposed and naked. Now, again, please remember, this is not a, a literal going out and wandering around the streets. Remember, she is the queen of the land. No watchman would ever have done that. So, so the imagery she's using is her own sense of feeling, the pain, the vulnerability, perhaps, the exposure at having, for the first time in her entire life, been vulnerable and exposed to her husband. So this is the imagery. Then, he, then she goes on looking for him. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my lover, what will you tell him? Tell him this, I am faint with love for him. So again, her passion, her desire, is pushing past the vulnerability, pushing past the pain, pushing past the risk. And now she, she longs for a, a, a reunion, a connection with him again. And so she uses the chorus in the, in the, in the poem to, 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 to um, reflect her longing. My heart is faint with love. How is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How? Is your beloved better than others that you should charge us so? So the chorus here now says, what is it about your husband? What is it about your beloved that makes you so long for him? And then she goes on and says this. I've, get it to, I've edited this because I get tired of her talking about how wonderful he is. Don't, don't you ever, you, you just, uh, yeah, 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 yada, yada, yada. <laughs> but here she starts off. This, my lover is radiant and, and ruddy outstanding among 10,000. Guys, wouldn't it be amazing if you knew that your wife felt this way about you and told others that you were her hero, that you were the man of her dreams? Now, remember, she's coming off vulnerability. She's coming off pain. She's coming off longing. And still she says, He's a man among 10,000. And then she says this, down at the end of that paragraph, this is my lover, this is my friend, O oh, daughters of Jerusalem. So this, this, this um, public, if you will, remember we're still in this in and out stage, but her longing for him, she believes in him, her heart is set on him. Okay, so this is the scenario. Then he goes on to this next passage. Where has your lover gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did your lover turn? How may we look for him with you? And then she goes on and says, he has gone down to his garden. He's gone back to his room, to the beds of spices, to browse in the gardens, to gather lilies. I am my lover's. My lover is mine. He browses among the lilies. She knows where he is and pursues him. So here's this next thing. You are beautiful. So when he sees her, now, I need you to know, the last time they, they talked in this chapter, he heard her say no to him. 
He heard her say no to his passion. You with me? Look at his response when first he sees her. There's no recrimination. There's no shame. There's no guilt. There's no finger shaking. What does he do? He, he uses exactly the same language he uses on their honeymoon. Not only does she celebrate his beauty, his strength, his courage to public witness, he does the same thing to her. He brags about her. He celebrates her beauty. He honors her. Even though their last conversation was one of denial. He says, you are beautiful, my darling. As Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem, majestic as troops with banners. <laughs> I love this. Turn your eyes away from me. They overwhelm me. I love that imagery, don't you? Just this sense of, of, of power and passion and love. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. It's more than I can handle here in public. Because that's the image. Then he goes on. 60 queens there may be, 80 concubines, virgins be all number, but you, my dove, my perfect one, you're unique. You're the only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. Then the next one, she says, so before I realized it, my desire, which had left me exposed and vulnerable, has now resulted in me being drawn to my husband and set among the royal chariots of my people. This ancient symbol of elevation, of being lifted up. He has used his power, notice, as king, not to dominate her. She has used her power, sexual as, as it is, and very powerful, not to manipulate him. He has used his power to elevate her, to lift her to a place of celebration of the beauty and power of their love together. So this is, this is the context of chapters 5 and 6. So I want to talk a little bit about what this tells us. We can go back to the, yeah, thanks. Uh, go back to the splash screen if you want. And, and, and th this story is just, is, is, is really a fascinating study. And I want to use it to focus particularly on how do we handle conflict? How do we handle it when we hear a no, when we would have liked to have heard a yes? How, how do we handle it when and that no is not just about sexuality, but it might be about the denial of something that is otherwise the desire of our heart? How do we handle it when our differences degrade into conflict? Differences are the gift of a healthy marriage. Differences, the, if, you, if, if you agree on everything, one of you probably isn't necessary. Right? Whenever I do pre-marriage counseling, uh, one of my first questions as we walk through with people in the early stages is, what do you fight about? And if, now I've, they've been warned by now, because usually I'm dealing with my 18 to 22 year olds at the university, so they know not to answer this question this way. But they used to say, we don't fight at all. Because my response would always be, well, we're going to see what we can do about that. <laughs> if you don't know how to fight well, you probably aren't ready to get married. Because your ability to resolve conflict is the number one indicator of your capacity for longevity in marriage. Number one, more than anything else, can you resolve conflict in a way that's healthy and moves, moves you forward? That one indicator. So here we have the story of a conflict. In this case, it's a sexual conflict. The ability to handle conflict, to use it redemptively, to build intimacy. Intimacy, remember, is to know and be known. 
So conflict helps uncover the places in which I am very different than my husband or wife. The point, of course, is that you are not almost at all compatible with your husband or your wife. We spend huge amounts of time, effort, and energy trying to find someone with whom we are compatible. If one of you is a man and one of you is a woman, you're not compatible. <laughs> you gotta figure out how to live with somebody who's not like you, who does not see much of the world at all the way you do, right? Who thinks differently about everything than you do, right? I mean, if you wanna look at Myers-Briggs, I'm an ISTJ, Judy is an ENFP. It's a true story. We are as opposite as we can possibly be. We don't think about anything the same way. I am a straight line linear thinker. Judy is a global thinker. I go A plus B equals C. She goes A, green. <laughs> Yugoslavia. X. And, and I'm like, she thinks a hundred times faster than I do in conflict. I need, I need space. Remember all that language that says, uh, don't walk away from a conflict. If I don't, I'm, I'm in trouble. Because she's going to, uh, what do you think? 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 And I don't know what I think. <laughs> if you keep pushing me, though, I'm going to make something up. <laughs> and then that will be what I think, even if I don't think it anymore. So I gotta, I gotta walk. I gotta walk around the block. Then I know what I think. Okay, now, yeah. I mean, on and on and on and on the list goes. This, I am a maps person. I prefer GPS and maps. Judy is turn left at the white mailbox. <laughs> Babe, we've never been in this city before. I know. I know, just turn left to the white male. Now, here's the deal. 25 years in, I, I consistently resisted the gift of my wife's capacity to know things without knowing how she knew them. Seriously, right? Because if it wasn't logical to me, I d it didn't make any sense. And then I realized 25 years in, about 10 years ago, she's right about 85% of the time. Um, whatever the issue is. I mean, we can, we can literally, we've been put into a strange city, and she will, and within five, ten minutes, turn left at the white mailbox. What? How? We've never, I've learned to pay attention to that. Now, 85% of the time, that's not a bad average. Do you, do you see what I'm, what I'm saying here? So conflict, learning to live with somebody who's not you, Learning to receive the gift that God has given you in somebody who doesn't think at all like you about anything and play on the same team. That's what this passage is about, fundamentally. How do we resolve that conflict? Because differences, first of all, are not conflict. But here's where conflict comes from. It's when I feel threatened. Conflict almost inevitably, not differences, not disagreements, if you can resolve most of your differences, most of your disagreements at the communication, conversational level, that's cool. That's, that's really ideally where we want to go. But when you feel things being taken personally, here's the indicator for me. When I become defensive, I'm feeling, she's not doing it, but I'm feeling attacked. 
and I respond in kind. I respond out of that defensiveness. So please notice, when differences get personal, what is being uncovered there is my insecurities, my fears. They get triggered. I feel attacked. I'm not being attacked. I feel attacked. So what do I do in response? I'm self-defensive. I often will attack back. Notice the language. I hit him first before he... I hit him before he had a chance to hit me first. See what happens? So now what happened? Now what do I invite? I invite the same response back. So we end up in this escalation of conflict that ends up being toxic. Please notice that revenge says nothing about the person who hurt you, assuming they even did, but it says a lot about me. Revenge is hardly ever about the person who's hurt me. It's almost always about my sense of insecurity or fear or threat. Because fear is at the root of most conflict. And especially is that the case when it's uh, sexual conflict that we're talking about. So conflict, properly understood, gives us an opportunity for increased intimacy. Sexual conflict underlines and in this story particularly, the essential difference between male and female sexuality. Both of them are extremely powerful forces. More and more research is indicating that the notion of male sexuality being strong and powerful and female sexuality not being to the same degree, the more research that's coming out is indicating that they're both the same in terms of drive and passion and power. The difference is that female sexuality is terribly frightening for many women. The power of her longing and her desire, you saw it in the, in the, in the text here. The power of her desire the, it, it, it is frightening, especially, and as is often the case increasingly in our culture, early sexual pleasure has been linked to feelings of shame or guilt. And as it so often happens, if, they've, if women have been sexualized early, or if their early dating relationships have been highly sexualized, if there's a, a regular pattern of, of masturbation with pornography, all of that dynamic plays into the, the terror, and I'll use that word advisedly, the terror that links to the stirring of passion. It creates a high level of vulnerability, a high level of, 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 um, of often of pain, it is not uncommon for women to talk about the sense of having been raped even on her wedding night. So, so what does this say to us? It's not uncommon, again, for women to be afraid of their own sexual passion, its desire, its depth, its power, its majesty. And that fear often manifests in resistance, in desire for control, in the terror that the level of vulnerability can be, not be understood, that, that will push me into relationships, that will push me into behaviors, that will push me into things that I don't want to be part of, that leave me exposed and vulnerable. So that fear then pushes against attraction and desire. It deflects with hyper-control. It deflects with humor. A lot of flirting is about sexual play but also sexual manipulation to resist. 
so-called flirting anyway, uh, with humors, with strategies of preoccupation, with busyness in this story, the, the, I've, I've, I've taken, do I really? The pushback to the power of her sexuality. So whatever the cause, however, it still wars against her attraction for him. Genesis chapter 3, it's clear. The woman's desire will be for her husband. That's the way it's built. Likewise, his desire, of course, for her. This mutuality of attraction is fundamentally essential to the purposes for which God created marriage in the first place, which is the celebration of mutual submission, mutual service, mutual surrender for the uplifting and upbuilding of both of them and the honoring of the gift God has given. So if this man is wise then, and please notice, I'm, I hope you're starting to think and realize with me how important it is then for us to stand, understand how this fits into how God built marriage in the first place. He intended it to be not one of domination, not one of manipulation, but one of elevation, one of lift, one of mutual surrender, first to Christ and then to each other. So Solomon, in this particular case, the beloved, models for us exactly how to respond when our wife's response in response to the terror of her uh, passion, to the fear that it will push me into higher levels of commitment than I'm ready to or high levels of vulnerability that I'm ready for, his response is exactly right. No problem. You know what? You're still as beautiful to me today as you were on our wedding day. I will honor and treasure you for the rest of my life even if we never again participate in sexual concord. Now, how do you get there? You get there by being filled with the Spirit. I do not mean that facetiously. One of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, is sexual self-control. To be able to hear and know without anger or bitterness or resentment on either side, because sometimes I'm, I'm discovering increasingly that it works the other way. I'm dealing with way more men uh, in conversations now who are afraid of their inadequacy in terms of their own sexuality and manage that by resistance. As I, I uh, almost always have dealt with women who, who struggle against the comparisons of beauty, I'm now dealing with way more men who struggle with comparisons. This is the result, friends, of our pornographied culture and we're, 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 we've, 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 sown, we've sown to the whirlwind. The outcome of this in a marriage relationship is to have an attitude regarding sexuality of presumption. I presume a yes, but there's no entitlement. It's not my right. It's always got to be received as gift. Does, does that make sense? So he will continue to pursue her he will continue to treat her well with kindness and generosity and care. He will continue to build up what I've called the core intimacies, those five intimacies, social, intellectual, emotional, um, uh, spiritual, and physical without it necessarily being sexual. There's a whole lot, especially for women who are exploring sexuality, of physical intimacy that doesn't have to go sexual. And much of that, simply being held and embraced without it having to move into sexual intimacy, creates a safe place of vulnerability. This, the, this is the genius, by the way, of how God has designed us 
with mutual submission in mind. How may I serve you is a critical piece. So he will pursue her. Um, this in turn makes it safe for her to respond in kind to pursue him. Because the truth is, male sexuality needs female sexuality too. It, it, is, it is a misunderstanding that men have it figured out and women need to figure it out. The tragedy of what has happened in our sexualized culture is that male sexuality, which is almost identical in many ways to female sexuality, has been reduced by our culture to one thing and one thing only, and that is pleasure and the maximization thereof. Male sexuality is as whole person as female sexuality is. But the way the culture has moved and focused and framed it, it has narrowed down to a single-minded pursuit of pleasure of conquest, if you will. Who is going to teach the men of our generation to embrace the other dimensions of their personhood and sexuality but their wives who are wired that way from the get-go? Who are wired with a whole person, five-dimensional sexuality that needs to be honored socially and intellectually and emotionally and spiritually and physically without its becoming sexual, who can orient her husband to a pattern of sexuality that celebrates the whole person connection. Because you will discover, if you've been married for any length of time, that sexuality ebbs and flows in marriage. There are seasons. Kids come along, and jobs come along, and, and financial pressures come along, and uh, uh, age comes along, and cancer diagnoses come along, and uh, high blood pressures come along, and, 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 and. If you have not learned how to be a whole person in terms of your orientation to your husband or wife, even at the sexual level, sooner or later, frustration will become the mark of your marriage. Who's going to teach the men to embrace the whole person sexuality that God built them for? Well, God has, as it turned out, figured this one out too. They're called wives who, if they are permitted, and I'll use that language very carefully, if they are sought out, if they are empowered in their roles, can assist men in learning what it means to be a whole person, not just a single focused being, because there's that ebb and flow. And when he begins to treat her in those five-dimensional intimacies, when he creates a safe space for her to come out and play, then it is safe and possible for her, the power of her sexuality, not to risk high levels of vulnerability because it's safe. Do you see what he's after? You see what God's doing here? See what the poem celebrates? A friend of mine wrote on her blog uh, a, a, a reflection, and I asked permission to use it because I thought it captures exactly the safety that gets created when a husband treats his wife with honor and dignity and respect, when he hears a no for a no, when he gets the power of mutual submission, when he serves her in this way. This is what she says. It's an honest prayer, she says, about sex and marriage. Tonight, I cannot shave. I cannot be thinner. I cannot grow or shrink parts of my body. I cannot learn to dance on a lap or on a pole. 
I cannot be anything but me. But I can be brave. And I can smile. And I can kiss. And I can love. I can move toward you instead of away. I can stop disqualifying myself from fun. Tonight, I will let you love me as I am in this very instant. Not as I will be tomorrow or was yesterday. I can forget my age. I can forget the rules. I can forget my weight and my responsibilities. I can decide to play for just this night with the love of my life. Tonight, I can. Isn't that powerful? Now, what makes it possible for a woman, fearful, exposed, vulnerable, afraid, to come to a place of risky surrender like that? Oh, I know what it is. It's a husband who has earned the right to that level of respect and honor by honoring the no, by honoring the terror, by serving her to life. We don't avoid conflict. We don't get caught up in competition in conflict where it's win-lose. And can I say this? We don't even compromise. What we do instead is cooperate. Avoidance goes internal and stays there, showing up in our bodies, or it goes internal and comes out sideways, passive-aggressive against the kids, against the clerk at Vaughn's, right? That, that avoidance doesn't go away. Competition means I have to win, which means you have to lose, which means everything is fair game because the goal is no longer the resolution of the issue. It is that I win or lose, that you lose. Compromise seems like it's promoted as win-win, but it feels like lose-lose. And compromise requires me to keep score because i got to remember who lost last time so that that one doesn't lose again this time. How many of you have noticed that you and your spouse or you and your friends keep score differently? What it cost you to gain what you got this time is way less than it cost me to give it to you. So, cooperation is rooted in covenant. It means that I'm going to act towards you out of love for you. I'm going to act towards you out of who I am, not out of who you are, not out of you, how you treat me. Please notice, the beloved did not treat her the way she treated him. He acted out of his character which made him endlessly attractive to her. No power except to lift. A sense that we're on the same team. A sense that we have one another's back. A sense that in public and private, I believe there's nobody on the planet who I'd rather be connected to than you. A sense that it does not matter who puts the ball through the basket, our team gets two points. So I don't have to win. I just need to get you the ball. If you're in scoring position, I want that ball through the basket. And what's the win? It's not my way or your way. The win is that we grow towards Christ's likeness. 
The win is not the resolution of the conflict. The win is using the conflict to grow us to Christ-likeness. It does not matter 98% of the time who gets their way. What matters is how you resolve the conflict, how you resolve the tension, and whether that moves us towards Christ-likeness. For men, this means asking without demanding or demeaning. Respect is earned and offered, not demanded or defined. For women, it is about choosing to be vulnerable, choosing to be known as a mark of strength and courage and being willing to teach what only you can teach. Let's pray. Lord, this has uh, taken us a, a, a long way and we're coming to the end of our time. But I don't want to leave too quick. I want to spend a couple minutes just inviting us to sit in stillness. Lord, lots going on today, this afternoon, but I don't want to move too quickly from this place. I pray, O oh Lord, for courage for husbands, for wives, for friends, because this isn't just about conflict between intimates, it's conflict as well between friends and colleagues, especially brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray that you would give us courage, O oh Lord, to lay down our sword, the sword of the necessity of being right. Give us courage, O oh Lord, to surrender our right to be right, to create a safe place for others to come out and play, just the way you did for us. You could have insisted on your power, you had it all, but you didn't. And in that, you model for us what it means. Help us as husbands to love our wives the way you loved us. Help us as wives to love our husbands in response to that love, that mutuality of surrender modeled by Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.